welcome you here and for those who are watching online as well. And I trust the Lord will bless us even as we gather around his words. So Leviticus 23, and we will commence reading at verse 15. I'll read through to verse 22. So let's hear the word of the Lord. And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall ye number fifty days, and ye shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. Ye shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. And ye shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock and two rams. They shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord, with their meat offerings and their drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of sweet savour unto the Lord. Then ye shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering, and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. And they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And ye shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be a holy convocation unto you. Ye shall do no servile work therein. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. And when ye reap the harvest off your land, Thou shalt not make a clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest. Neither shalt thou gather any gleanings of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Amen. Ending at verse 22. Let's look to the Lord now in a word of prayer. Let's come before the Lord. Eternal God and gracious and loving Father, we thank you once again for this privilege to come to thy throne of grace. And we thank you that there we can obtain mercy and we can find grace uh, to help in our time of need. And Lord, it is for thy grace, thy blessing, thy mercy, thy love, O God, that we seek this morning. And pray, O God, that thou would pour out upon us uh, the Holy Ghost to help us, Lord, even as we come to consider these things. I pray, O Heavenly Father, that thou would O God, wash me and cleanse me. Lord, the responsibility is upon me. And Lord, I feel that, and I pray that thou would send the Holy Ghost to help me, to enable me, to take, O God, that has been treading out and trodden out in the study. O God, that be a blessing unto your people. That will be instruction to them, that it will build them up, furnish them, help them in their Christian walk and in their life, O God. We thank thee for what we see of Christ in these feasts. And Lord, we pray that once again that thou would draw, O God, the veil away from our eyes and the dullness that is often there. And that, O God, would give us a clear view of the Lord Jesus and all that he has done for us and all that he continues to do for us. And so, blessed Father, we pray that thou would hear our prayer and that thou would bring glory to Christ. For this we ask in his precious and his worthy name. Amen. This morning we continue our study of the shadows of the Savior, as seen first in the Levitical offerings and secondly in the feasts of the Lord. The last time we were looking at the feast of the first fruits, a feast which was first observed when the children of Israel came into the land 
of promise. And we notice concerning it that it was to do with the barley harvest, and it happened around March or April. Now, we did consider the ceremony involved. It was quite simple. A sheaf of the first fruits was to be taken from the field, and it was to be waved before the Lord. And along with that was a burnt offering to be offered and a double grain offering. And they're both described as a sweet-smelling uh, savor or offerings unto the Lord. Now, with the first feast of the first fruits, there was no sin offering to be offered. We secondly thought about the consecration in the feast of the first fruits. Before the Israelites could eat off the harvest themselves, they were to consecrate the whole thing, and that was really represented by that first sheaf. They were to consecrate it all unto the Lord. They were to give thanks to the Lord for it. And we noted the challenge that was in that consecration, the battle for the first things in our lives. There's the battle for the first hours in the day. There's the battle for the first years of our lives. There's a battle for the first day of the week. There's the battle for the first part of our substance. And there is the battle for the first affections in our hearts. So there's all the, the battles for the first things in our lives, but we are to consecrate ourselves wholly unto the Lord. And uh, the evidence of that is we, if we give the first things of all that I have mentioned there. Thirdly, we looked at the Christ in the feast of the first fruits. And I took the time to show you that many believed that the Feast of the First Fruits that occurred and took place on the 17th day of the month Nisan. And from Scripture, we deduced that other certain events happened on that day. For example, uh, Noah's Ark, it came to rest on Mount Ararat on that day. The children of Israel, they came out of Egypt on that day. They ate the first fruits of the land of Canaan on that day. Haman was defeated, and he was hanged upon the gallows on that day. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead on that day. And it's clear that we can see a type of Christ in the feast of the first fruits from the words of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the guarantee of the future resurrection of all those who die in the Lord and Christ. He's called the first fruits because he's the first to rise in time. In that he is the first to rise, never to die again no more. And he's also the first to rise in rank. His resurrection was a preeminent one. It was a resurrection like none other. He was exalted to the place at the Father's right hand. But it has to be said that just as the first fruits, they bore a resemblance and they represented the harvest that was yet in the field, the resurrection that you and I will take part in will bear similarities to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we learn and we know that when we are resurrected, we'll have a body that is made like unto Christ's glorious body. But obviously, it's not a resurrection like his. He's resurrected and he's been raised and exalted to the right hand of God. Now, just as the priest would have waved that sheaf before the Lord, so too the Lord Jesus Christ presented himself before the Father. And as I've said, that's a guarantee that those who are in him will be raised from the dead and they too shall stand before the Lord. Now this morning, we come to the fourth of the feasts of the Lord and it's mentioned in Leviticus 23 in the verses 15 to 22. And it is the feast of weeks. Once again, we're going to consider it 
under three headings. Firstly, we have the rudiments of the Feast of Weeks, the basic principles or the elements of uh, this feast. Now, the Feast of Weeks is the second of the solemn or the three solemn feasts that all Jewish meals were required to travel to Jerusalem to attend and to observe. We read of that in Exodus chapter 23, 14 to 17, and Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. The other two feasts, the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. But to the Jews, this celebration, this feast is known as Shavuot. And that's a Hebrew word that means weeks. And the feast, well, it gets its name from the fact that it starts seven full weeks or exactly 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits. This is one of the four separate names that's used in Scripture concerning this feast, the Feast of Weeks, as we learn here in Leviticus 23. But it's also called the Day of the Firstfruits in Numbers chapter 28 and verse 26. It's called the Feast of Harvest in, in, in Exodus 23, 16. And since it takes place exactly 50 days, after the previous feast, it's also known as Pentecost. Pente, Pentateuch, first five books, Pentecost, as we read in Acts chapter 2. And Pentecost, well, it's really an English uh, derivation of a Greek word that means 50. And so we have it there in the word Pentecost. Now, all three mandatory feasts, uh, they required that the first fruit uh, would be offered unto the Lord in the temple as a way of expressing thanksgiving to God for his provision. The Feast of the First Fruits, which occurred around the time of the Passover, well, it included the first fruits of the barley harvest. The Feast of Weeks, which was a celebration of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And the Feast of the Tabernacles was really a celebration and a thanksgiving for the first fruits of the olive and the grape harvests. Now, since this was one of the harvest feasts, this Feast of Weeks, the Jews were commanded, in verse 16 we read, they were commanded to offer, offer a new meat, and we learned that that word meat it can represent grain. They were to offer a new grain offering unto the Lord. This offering, we go on to read, was to be of two wave loaves, as it tells us in verse 17, two wave loaves of two tenth deals, they shall be a fine flour, they shall be bacon with leaven, they are the first fruits unto the Lord. This was an offering of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. We go on to read that along with these wave offerings, there were to be seven first year lambs offered with it, one bullock and two rams, and then additional offerings at these offerings themselves uh, required when they were offered, as we're told in the book of Leviticus. Now, as the Feast of Weeks took place exactly 50 days after the Feast of the Firstfruits, we can deduce that it normally took place either in the last part of May or the begin beginning of June. And unlike the other feasts, which began on a specific day of the Hebrew calendar, this one it's really calculated by counting from the previous feast. We learn of that in verse 15. And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, that's the Sabbath of the feast of the first fruits, 
from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall, ye, shall be complete. Even unto the morrow, after the seventh Sabbath, ye shall, shall ye number fifty days. So seven times seven is forty-nine, plus one, referring to there the morrow after the seventh Sabbath. Uh, well, that equals fifty. And so we're not to be mislaid that this feast was to be celebrated because of its name as the Feast of Weeks that is to be celebrated for those seven weeks plus one day. It was only to be celebrated on the 50th day on the Sabbath after the Feast of the first fruits. Now, without question, because this was one of the harvest feasts, it was a ceremony of thanksgiving to God, acknowledging that all daily provisions come from Him. And over time, when the Israelites, they settled in Canaan, the tradition developed that as they were offering this uh, feast or this presentation of first fruits unto the Lord, the offerer would recite the portion found in Deuteronomy 26 in the verses 5 to 10. And in that portion, it acknowledges the nation's humble beginnings, their bondage in Egypt, God's deliverance from it, and his bringing them into a fruitful land. In verse 10 in Deuteronomy 26, we read these words. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land, which thou, O Lord, hast given me. And again in this feast, we are reminded to be thankful for all that we receive. Because it comes from the hand of God. Our daily bread, it is given unto us from him. And so the Israelites they were continually reminded to be thankful to the Lord for all their provision to them. Now, concerning the timing of this feast, we learn from Scripture that the children of Israel, they arrived in Mount Sinai. I always used to say Mount Sinai until I visited Israel and the guide. Well, he says, well, it's Mount Sinai. And so that's how I'm going to try to say it through this study. But we learn there that they arrived at Mount Sinai sometime during the third month after leaving Egypt. If you turn to Exodus chapter 19 and the verse 1, we see that. Exodus chapter 19, that after they came out of Egypt, they arrived at Mount Sinai uh, the third month after. Exodus 19 verse 1, it says there, in the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. Now this is about one week before what became known as Pentecost. And the Lord told Moses on the 47th day after their departure from Egypt that he would appear to the people. You move on down to verse 11. The Lord says unto Moses, well, verse 10, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And this means that the Lord would appear to them. He would come in a special way on the 50th day. So while initially the Feast of Weeks was a Thanksgiving festival, for the goodness of God, it became, it became a memorial to the Jewish people for the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, there are similarities and contrasts 
with the first Pentecost on Sinai and the one that we read about in Acts chapter 2. God descended at both times and there were visible and audible manifestations of the glory of God. And we read about that in Acts and we read about that in Exodus chapter 19 and on into chapter 20. At Sinai, there were 3,000 killed. And we read about that in Exodus 32 in verse 28. And while the law is holy, just, and good, since we by nature are sinful and have no capacity to keep the law, uh, therefore we cannot obtain justification or life by our observance of it. For we always fall short. But in Acts chapter 2, we notice that 3,000 firstfruits of God's spiritual harvest were gathered to Christ. They were saved as a new administration of the new covenant began. We read in Scripture, while the letter killeth, the Spirit giveth life. And as Peter preached Christ in the power of the Holy Ghost, 3,000 souls were given spiritual life. You see, those who have the indwelling of the Spirit, they are those who have been grafted into Christ. They are those who have His righteousness imputed to them. And Christ, as Paul tells us there in the book of Romans, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And as such, individuals are justified, and therefore they possess eternal life. So there's such a contrast there. The letter killeth. Yes, the law, it's just, it's good, it's holy. But because of our nature, we can't observe it. We can't obtain justification through it. And therefore, it tends to death. But Christ preached in the power of the Spirit, applied to our heart, it brings life into the soul. And so there is a contrast there between the first Pentecost and the Pentecost that we read there in Acts chapter 2. Now, like the other, the other Jewish feasts, the Feast of Weeks, it is important because it foreshadows the coming Messiah and his ministry. And we know that Jesus was crucified as a Passover lamb. He rose from the grave as the firstfruits. And following his resurrection, he spent 40 days teaching his disciples before he ascended to heaven, as we read in Acts chapter 1. As 50 days, another 10 days, the disciples had to tarry in Jerusalem. But 50 days after his resurrection and ascending to heaven at God's right hand, that he sent the Holy Spirit, as promised, to indwell his disciples and to empower them for ministry. And while the book of Acts is often referred to as the Acts of the Apostles, it is really the acts of Christ, through them by his Spirit, which was poured out at Pentecost. As we read in Acts chapter 1 and the verse 1, the former treaties, have I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began, both to do and teach. Christ's ministry did not cease when he returned to heaven, but by his Spirit and through the church, he continues to work. He continues to gather people unto himself. He continues to teach and instruct his people. The rudiments of the Feast of Weeks.
But secondly, this morning, I want to consider the representation in the Feast of Weeks. Now, while the feast was one which marked the beginning of the ingathering of the wheat harvest, it was typically a picture of the ingathering of God's elect by the operation of God the Holy Ghost. And because of this, a good number of commentators, they see the two loaves of leaven, bread that are mentioned in verse 17 back in Leviticus 23, those that were to be offered as a way of offering presented before the Lord as representing both the Jew and the Gentile who are made one in Christ as we read in Ephesians chapter 2. You see, the Apostle Paul, he tells us in Galatians 3, 13 and 14, well-known verses, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. But then it goes on to say that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. God's intention from the very beginning was to save both Jew and Gentile, to bring them unto himself, that the blessing of Abraham, what was that blessing? Justification by faith alone in Christ alone, that that blessing would come upon the Gentiles. And so it was always God's intention that Jew and Gentile would be brought to him and presented before him. And so many believe that in these two leaven loops, we have a representation of that. Now, it became the custom as well during the Feast of Weeks that the book of Ruth was read. That day, the Feast of Weeks, it's called that, but it happened on that day, the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, after the Sabbath that was observed at the first Feast of the First Fruits, if you can keep that in your mind. But 50 days after that Sabbath. But the book of Ruth was read. And that was suitable because... It deals with Bethlehem at harvest time. And in Ruth chapter 2, we read that that harvest season, there it runs right from the barley harvest, which would have been the keeping of the feast of the first fruits, but it runs right through into the feast of uh, weeks, which was the wheat harvest. But more than that, Ruth was a Gentile. She was a Gentile who came to love the God of Israel, Naomi's God, who both, Naomi and Ruth, they both had a lost inheritance redeemed by their kinsman, Redeemer, Boaz, which, of course, we know represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that book was most appropriate because, yes, it presents a harvest field or scene, but because a Gentile, Ruth, a Moabites was brought into the covenants of the promise. She was no longer an alien or a foreigner or a stranger to it, but she was brought to faith in the God of Israel. Now in verse 17, Leviticus 23, we read that these two loaves were to be brought out of your habitations. Now this is not strictly speaking about individual homes, but rather in a general sense, it refers to the land in which they dwelt. It wasn't that every home had to bring two loaves. Rather, there were two loaves that were made from fine flour, 
that was obtained from the wheat that was grown in the land where they dwelt. And those two loaves were offered on the behalf of the nation. You see, God has a people to be gathered out of every nation. And in order for a people uh, to be gathered out, and in order for that to happen, well then the seed of God's word must be sown in those lands. And so when it says here that these loaves were to be brought out of their habitations, it means of the land in which they dwelt. From the crop that was grown in that land, from the seed that was sown in the land where they dwelt. And what an encouragement that is for God's people, even in missionary work missionary endeavor. If there's a people to be gathered out, and God has told us there are a people from every nation, well then the seed must be sown in that land. And from that will come forth a harvest of souls. We also read in verse 17 that these two loaves of bread were to be bacon with leaven, with leaven. And this is the only feast where leavened bread is used, or was used. Leaven in Scripture, and we know this from a previous study, it's used often to signify or symbolize sin. And the leavened bread used in the Feast of Weeks is thought to be representative of the fact that there is still sin within the church and will be until Christ returns. You see, though born of God, justified, filled with the Spirit, and adorned with gifts of His grace, believers, we are still people that are defiled with the leaven of sin. Now again, in a previous study, we learned that the Apostle Paul, he says that even now, we're to purge out the old leaven. It's still present in us. But we can look forward to this at the moment of our death. The final purging of the leaven of sin in our soul will take place. Our souls are made perfect in death. And will pass into glory. We agree with both John and Paul's assessment of ourselves. John said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. What did Paul say? If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, what does he say? But sin that dwelleth in me. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit-filled church stood before God in the full perfection and acceptance of Christ's blood and righteousness. They were crowned with the gifts of the Spirit, and yet they were leavened. They were leavened with the flesh, the sin that dwells within. Indwelling sin is something we live with. It's something that we shouldn't tolerate, but it's something we war with. And we will do as long as we live in this world. And that fact is portrayed by the type that is before us. These two loaves... Many believe representing Jew and Gentile, and yet the leaven present in them. That fact is portrayed by the type. It's also set forth in the actual history of the church and the experience of every believer. 
if they're honest, that is, and not filled with self-righteousness. We know the leaven of sin is still present in us. Now these two loaves that were waved before the Lord, they are made out of fine flour, wheat flour, the product of that which had been sown into the earth. And again, we could think of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John 12, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And what is interesting about that verse, it is given in the context of certain Greeks who had come to Jerusalem to worship, and they desired of Philip that they would see Jesus. And Christ was showing even then that he was the Savior of both the Gentile and the Jew. That's the context in which that verse was given about the corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying and bringing forth fruit. And there the harvest was coming. Christ saw it as those Greeks desired of Philip that they would see Jesus. Though Christ had not died, though it was certain that he would, Christ saw the harvest coming. Now these two loaves, low leavened, they were accepted by the Lord as a sweet, as an offering of sweet savor because, it has to be said, because of another sacrifice. And we read that in verses 18 to 20, Leviticus 23. Let's read those verses. And ye shall offer with the bread. Seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock and two rams, and they shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord. Remember, the burnt offering speaks of atonement. With their meat offering, or grain offerings, who could read it, and their drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of sweet savor unto the Lord, then ye shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering, and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall weave them with the bread of the firstfruits for a weave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And we see there a very full and complete burnt offering was offered. Seven lambs without blemish, of the first year, one bullock and two rams. Now we know that seven in Scripture, it's a number of perfection. It's a number of grace. It's a number of completion. It's a number of the work of God. It's a number of rest. And so that's all incorporated in that. And along with that, as I said, the usual meat offerings and the drink offerings that were prescribed. And then a sin offering and the two lambs of the first year for a peace offering. The two leaven loaves were to be weaved with the two lambs. And God accepted them as one. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And here we have an immediate connection between the leavened loaves and the presentation of an unblemished sacrifice Typifying the great and all-important truth that it's Christ's perfection and not our sinfulness that is ever before the eye of God. God sees my Savior and then he sees me 
in the beloved accepted and free. And the performance of this, the performance of taking the lambs along with the loaves and waving them before the Lord, it was a demonstration by the priest that the church is made up of both Jew and Gentile, imperfect still, but they only have peace with God through the Lamb. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord knows the leaven that remains within us. And yet he does not deal with us after our sins. Nor does he reward us according to our iniquities. But he deals with us in grace. And he accepts us according to the Lamb. According to the Lamb. And there that was all typified before the Jews. They would have known what leaven represented. With all the prescription of the Lord telling them to purge their houses in the feast of unleavened bread. To rid their houses of any contaminants of the leaven. They would have known that would have represented something impure. And by the leaven loaves being lifted up before the Lord. But also the lamb with it. They would have understood by faith they were accepted on the basis of the lamb. Now many grains of wheat were threshed and ground, kneaded and baked in order to create the loaves. And believers which incorporate, the many believers, which incorporate the church of Christ, they're often put through the threshing and the grounding and the kneading and the baking process of suffering and tribulation. Read about that in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 and 1 Peter 1 verse 7. And those trials of her faith, while they're not pleasant, they're a means by which you and I are conformed to the one who is the bread of life. It is a means by which we become useful and beneficial to others. That grain there, unthreshed and unground and unneeded and unbaked, it would have been of usefulness to no man. And yet when it went through the process, it became beneficial and useful to others. What is interesting is that each of those grains of wheat which make up the whole, they, they lost their distinctiveness, we might say, in the prominence when combined in the loaf. And the church has many members. And it comprises one body. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 12. And each member in that body doesn't seek its own preeminence. Doesn't do that. But it becomes part of the whole. We read in verse 20. Back there in Leviticus 23. That they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. See not only the lambs that were used in the, for the peace offerings. Not only were, did they belong to the priest and he could have them. But also the two loaves of the leavened bread were the priest's. The bread would have been eaten, eaten by the priest, assimilated into his body. It would have become part of him. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, we read, For we, being many, are one bread and one body. And of course, the one body is the body of Christ. And he is the head. We have been baptized by the Spirit into one body. 
And the Holy Ghost is the divine agent who applies what the Passover lamb has accomplished. What did he accomplish? Redemption of a people to God by blood out of every nation that he might make them what? One holy nation. One body. And so we see this represented in the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks was fulfilled as described in Acts chapter 2. You see, it was then when the day of Pentecost had fully come. It was then there came the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples. As Christ himself had promised and as was predicted in passages in the Old Testament such as Joel chapter 2. Peter quotes from Joel 2 in Acts 2 verse 16 to 21. You see, it was then when the Holy Spirit was poured out that the disciples were able to speak with foreign tongues, the different languages of those who had come to Jerusalem to worship. And then they were able to make known the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the ingathering of the harvest of the Gentiles began in earnest. It is interesting that the passage that Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2 it comes after a portion, and it's set in a context that relates very much to a harvest. In Joel chapter 2, in verse 24, you read this here. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And there the success of a bumper harvest being gathered in came about because of the blessing of God. Because he sent the former and the latter rains. And it's by the sending or the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that the harvest of souls are gathered in. That Christ's threshing floor is filled with wheat and that it's gathered into his garner. And that's why we ought to continually pray that the Lord would pour out the showers of his Spirit upon us because that is how the harvest is gathered in. And this is what we see here represented in the Feast of Weeks. So the rudiments or the essential elements of the Feast of Weeks. We thought about the representation in the Feast of Weeks. But finally and briefly this morning, I want to consider the requirement attached to the Feast of Weeks. You go to Leviticus 23 again in verse 22. We'll read this. And when... Ye reap the harvest of your land. Thou shalt not make clean riddance of all the corners of thy field when thou reapest. Neither, neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now affixed to the end of this feast is a seemingly unrelated verse. It appears to have nothing to do with the feast of weeks at all. As a repeat of what we find in Leviticus 19 and verse 9. It suggested that this not only applies to the wheat harvest, but also to the barley harvest and the harvest of the grapes and the olives. And it was thought that really, well, this was an appropriate time for the priest. Don't forget they had been reaping the barley harvest there, the feast of the first fruits, from March, April time. 
This being the whole harvest season. They were coming into the feast of, of weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And it's thought that this was really an appropriate time for the priest to remind the people of this requirement to consider the poor and the stranger why they enjoyed the blessing of God in a harvest. It's in the book of Ruth again that we see this law practiced. Remember the handfuls of purpose and the gleaners coming behind the reapers. And that's another reason why the book was traditionally read during this feast of weeks. Now laws benefiting the poor were common in the ancient Near East, but only the regulations of Israel extended this treatment to the resident foreigner, the stranger in the land. And this was yet another way that God's people were to be distinct from the surrounding nations. Their kindness, their love, their compassion was to be extended to the stranger in their midst, to the resident foreigner in their land. They weren't to look out for number one. And that should be the case in any church fellowship, any stranger, any visitor that comes in. Well, God's people, more than other people, should be the most welcoming and friendly and happy to see them. It's the same with the foreigner in the land. They're often looked upon with disdain. And yet God's people should be the ones who reach out to them the most in love and in compassion. Now there's other texts and they specify that the widow and the orphan, they fitted into this category as well. We know that Ruth was a widow. She, filled, she fitted a lot of the categories. She was poor. She was a widow. She was a stranger in the land. And that's why I say that the book of Ruth was read at this time. And while this, there was undoubtedly an element of compassion and love and charity, because this is a command, this was a, also an obligation that lay upon them. Yes, there was an element of love, compassion, charity, but there was also an obligation that lay upon them. And fulfillment of this would be an expression of their obedience and also a fruit of their holiness. They would be like God in doing this. God was good to them. They were to be good to others. And there is an obligation that lies upon us. Upon us to lovingly consider the poor and the resident foreigner. Especially when the Lord blesses us. And there is an associated promise to those who do so. In Psalm 41 and verse 1 it says, Blessed is he that considereth the poor, the Lord will deliver him in the time of trouble. When he, that individual comes in to want, to need trouble, well the Lord will come to him. God blesses us in order that we would bless and be a blessing to others. And it was consideration of the poor and the needy that the Lord said would be a mark of the righteous who would enter in to receive eternal life. In Matthew 25, those that visited, those that gave a cup of cold water, those that clothed and fed, the Lord said that would be a mark of the righteous who would enter into eternal life. But whether we have been blessed financially or not, 
we as God's children have been most certainly blessed spiritually. And in the midst of our blessing, we are not to forget the spiritually poor or those who are yet strangers to the covenant of promise. We are to be mindful of them. We are to deal out the bread of the gospel to those that are hungry. Matthew Henry, he commented, those who are truly sensible of the mercy they receive from God will show mercy to the poor without grudging. Verse 22, it closes with the words, I am the Lord your God. This command comes from no higher authority. He is the one who gave them all that they had. And they in turn were to be like him. And to remember and to give to others. This morning we've considered another feast of the Lord, a feast of weeks. The rudiments of the feast, the representation in the feast, and this requirement attached to the feast. It presents to us another aspect of the work of Christ. The outpouring of His Spirit upon the church in order that Jew and Gentile would be reaped from the harvest of this world. That's what we need. We need the outpouring of the Spirit. The old time power, the Pentecostal power, that sinners would be converted and God's name glorified. May the Lord bless this study to our hearts and challenge us and edify us even through his word. Let's bow in prayer and let's look to the Lord, please. Our gracious God and loving Father, we thank you once again for shadows of the Savior in the feast of weeks. We thank thee, Lord, that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, that you poured out your Spirit upon the New Testament church. And in earnest, there began the ingathering of the Gentile nations. We thank you, Lord, that we find our fulfillment in that too. We thank you, Lord, that the gospel, the seed of the gospel was sown in our land and in our hearts. And we thank the Lord that you have reaped us, and Lord, from this world. We thank thee, blessed Father, that even though the leaven of sin still remains within us, we are accepted because of the Lamb. O God, we thank thee. We thank thee for all the blessings that we have. And we pray that we would not, as it were, hold them all to ourselves, but we would seek to endeavor to reach out to the spiritually poor, those who are yet strangers to grace and to God. So, Lord, bless the study. Remember the time of prayer. Remember, O oh God, the morning worship service. And we pray that you'll be glorified in all that is said and done. For this we ask in the Savior's precious and his worthy name. Amen.